Happy New Year. Great to see you here on the other side. We made it. We did make it to 2022. It doesn't feel like 2022. I'm going to I'm going to say it now while I'm thinking about it. We'll return to it next month, but I don't know if it's going to be 2222 or 22222. We blacks are supposed to be getting our superpowers. So that's right ultimate black history month days so we'll see this is your warning hello everyone what's your what's your power up what are you hoping for we'll see it's gonna it's just gonna depend like you know maybe i'll I'll get a laser vision or i don't know but it only goes out for six feet right okay all right anyway (laughs) hello everyone welcome to 2022 thanks for being here we're actually gonna uh get started this week scott uh well but before we get to the downbeat the new year's theme downbeat i wanted to mention just a couple things to continue the matrix four conversation just a couple things uh i didn't say it last week but I'll say it this week. One thing I was thinking about when I was watching that film was when Sister Soldier was like, where are the good white people? You know, right. when when they introduced the um, not machines, but sentience mm-hmm. that were on the side of the humans. I was instantly like, <laughs> where are the good robots? You know, and that's where they are. You know, uh, there are so many allegories to that film. I really hope everyone will go and watch it and think about certain things, especially if you're a fan of the Matrix universe. That makes me instantly think about allyship versus accompliceship. So I'm sure there are a lot of sentients that feel like they can do their part in the machine city. But these machines that are helping the humans and being on the ship and everything, mm-hmm. th- those are the accomplices. So where do we fall in line <laughs> in, in that comparison when it comes to our work? You know, one of my New Year's resolutions is to inspire more thoughts about class solidarity. I still center right. racial equity and, and liberation and all of those things. And if we can start thinking more class consciously, I think there's some some also some really big changes that can come. You know, again, thinking about Fred Hampton and and all those folks. I think about that when I uh, watch that film. But you know, ultimately, just the idea of freeing your mind. I think it's just escaping conditioned thinking or or hmm. conditional thinking. I mean, can you think of um, your life's equivalent of? unplugging, taking the red pill, thinking something, something that you think now being way outside of the confines or constructs that you Mm -hmm. once thought about those things. Uh, what would my red pill, what would it, what would I do with it? Where would it take me? Is that what you're saying? I'm I'm sure it'll take you many places, but no, I'm just saying, I wonder if there are thoughts or opinions or ideas you have now that represent some sort of awakening for you or unplugging for you, taking a red pill for you. And and that's a head, that's a deep question. I'm throwing it at you. I I know, but I can come up with something here real quick because uh, I've been thinking about bell hooks a lot recently uh, since her passing. And uh, I shared with my father the concept of the uh, the little bit of writing that she did that I shared a few opuses ago. Yeah, talking about masculinity, masculinity, and, its and, dangers and, and, and yeah. um, the the sabotage. Yeah, right. So I'm planting that seed in an email so that we can have that conversation. Mm. But we're getting closer. So um, I'm I'm just hopeful that there are more people out there who. You know, I I understand that there's a certain amount of get it done mentality that is instilled in young boys, you know, mm-hmm. to, so that the world continues to spin. Sure. Uh, but that happens with young, young girls as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we need to let the young guys know that it's okay to have emotions. Yeah. You know, anger is not the only emotion. <laughs> right. Right. I, 
really honor and am proud of the thought processes you're going through and the things that you're bringing to the podcast when you talk about masculinity and those things. I, it's it's a, a, a conversation that I don't feel particularly um, held down by. That's that masculinity mm-hmm. is is not my baggage. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate your being willing to dig into it and then apply that to the writings of folks like Bell Hooks and then of course to connect that to the arts and and all of those things. It's really cool. I'm I'm happy that you're getting to mm. do that, and, for that. And, and explore those ideas. All right. Well, um we aren't the only male hosts out here saying some salacious things for this week's downbeat. <laughs> Wait, what? We're gonna honor Andy Cohen. I'm gonna say this first. <laughs> I make a point not to watch this CNN special. I, I'm not a big fan of Andy Cohen. It's not particularly fun for me to watch people um, completely shit-faced on national TV and X, Y, and Z. But when I saw this year's rant going on uh, through Twitter and on my social media, I just knew I had to share it. So l- let's let's take a listen to what he was talking about. Let me tell you something. Oh, shit. Oh, please. Tell us something, Andy. Watching Mayor de Blasio don't go on a rant. Do his victory lap dance <laughs> after four years of the craziest as the mayor of New York. The That's only thing the that Democrats and Republicans can That's agree how, on I mean, is what a horrible mayor he has been. So sayonara, sucker. Wow. 2022. I mean, it's a new year. He was blowing his voice what? out. I mean, just screaming halfway hoarse. Anyway, <laughs> I don't tweet very much, but on my account, I tweeted if I had as many drinks as Andy Cohen had, I'd be Keith Richards. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Without question. Listen, neither of us, I'm sure, have any opinions on the new or outgoing mayor of New York. I have actually seen some people tweeting about the new mayor. He's a black man. He's former police or police affiliated. So there's been already some problematic things, whatever. That's not my business. I don't live in in New York city. Um, I'm attracted. Well, I'm intrigued by this sort of uh, rant on a network like CNN, something that is political because it just reminds me of, freedom just saying whatever you want this isn't the first year he's been shit-faced on tv and yet he's coming back and being invited back and back and back i thought that was a felony (laughs) oh yeah uh, being uh, drunk on the air drunk on air yeah that is right now it might just be for operators like if you're pushing buttons so if you're just in front if you're just talent you know (laughs) you you, you don't get to do any of that now of course we can speak to privilege and Mm -hmm. all of those things because they wouldn't have anybody up there, you know, getting drunk and and being salacious and and X, Y, and Z. So I I do acknowledge that. But I wonder what it would look like for you, how different your content would be as a radio broadcaster if your hands were off the button and on New Year's Eve, you could host classical music shit-faced. I mean, what what would that (laughs) say? Would you, first of all, would you feel comfortable leaving? You know, if all of everything was set up for you to do that, be able to do that, and you would keep your job and everything, would you take that night to let your hair down and do whatever? Because you were on the air this New Year's Eve. I would would miss so many posts. (laughs) 
Well, that's what, that's what the board op is for, right? Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> like they'll mm. they'll give give you the hand or the fist or something where you need to wrap it up. But mm. well, would you would you go down these lines? You know, getting completely, you know, <laughs> getting free with uh, your speech. I've got I've got enough trouble maintaining integrity and respect without being drunk. <laughs> so I'm afraid of what I would say. You know, it's again, it's just interesting to me because when I think about um, our role as podcasters and how different that is from classical radio, at least in its current iteration, how it is now, we're a long way, you know, for for the classical radio institutions being able to have hosts that let their hair, hair down like that and all of those things. Yeah. But, but yeah. I think the podcasters, you know, are exploring that that area i don't come on this podcast to shit face like I, I'll, I'll have a few drinks with dinner or whatever and you know we're smoking weed or whatever um i don't feel like i'm sounding like andy cohen though i mean <laughs> no and blowing your voice out <laughs> is you know i tweeted it's like career goals for me it's career goals to show up somewhere you know i don't have to engineer or edit anything i can come <laughs> however i am if i'm angry that day if i'm drunk that day if i you know that seems like career goals i think andy cohen has it figured out do you think he has it figured out i mean it, well, it, he, he seems unrestrained back. but what does he do when he's not doing this because you if he's making it working one day out of the year what else does he do? Well, I, uh, I think his show is called Watch What Happens Live, and that's real crazy. You know, oh, that's I'm, that that's something else, well, gossipy and all of that stuff. But but anyway, I'm I'm just bringing that up and and uh, bringing this as the downbeat, the first downbeat for 2022. Because in addition to thinking about class solidarity, I want to inspire more people to think freely. You know, speaking of the Matrix, think freely, speak freely. And not necessarily go on your job drunk and cussing anybody out and, and shitting on the mayor of whatever city you live in. But what if this spirit became more prevalent in classical spaces and, and art spaces? I think you would have a lot less passive aggression when it comes to programming. You would have more direct conversations when it comes to why certain things are being programmed and why certain things aren't being programmed. That would change the conversation of what the audience looks like because yeah. for most of these orchestras, at least, there's no arguing with the, you know, there, there's no debate there. Mm -hmm. Let's take a photo, let's, you know, and, and just take, see what it looks like. So I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm just saying, I want class ind uh, individuals within classical institutions to get closer and closer and closer to being unbridled about things like capitalism and and whatever rules you're following for the for the sake of a paycheck and you know just to inspire more free thoughts and uh, unadulterated speech in uh would that in have spaces. would that have been more impactful sober Probably not. I mean, if you were sober, maybe that would be a clip that would make it around the news sources and, oh, Andy Cohen gets political XYZ, but because he's drunk, he can he can say his truth and people so just kind of laugh at it. Oh, is there plausible deniability? Is he able to say, well, I was drunk. I didn't mean all of that. I suppose he could, but I don't think he would. You know, like they say in, in Vino Veritas, right? Isn't they that do, how it is? They do say that. Anyway, we're a long way away from some sort of classical hosted whatever or at least uh, in my knowledge of being like that, <laughs> but we're mm. getting there. And again, let me repeat myself, not necessarily just getting drunk and being shit faced and cussing people out, but really uh, untying your tongue from 
the things that they're tied to. I think, you know, we all of us in our professional work, even me and some of the work I do, maybe I don't say everything that's on my mind, but maybe I can challenge myself this year to push a little bit more myself, push myself a little bit more and a little bit more toward being more direct, more honest, more trill, if you will, in mm. art spaces. And I think if we all do that, if we all can challenge ourselves to be more honest and more direct with these institutions, we could really see some change. Again, class solidarity and doing everything we can. Um, my tie, my tongue and your tongue uh, is not tied here, though. So let's Truth. go ahead and get into it. Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Happy New Year. First opus of Triloquy in 2022 to all of the returning listeners. Thank you so much for continuing to support this show and maintain our status as a relevant and important part of the arts ecosystem when it comes to inspiring activism and equity and changing the status quo of so-called classical music. Thank you so much for continuing to support us. To the new listeners, thank you for being here. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and challenges the status quo that surrounds it by having conversation and in, uh, infusing music that many may not consider classical, at least Western classical here in the United States, but that we believe should be considered classical music, a classical part of our experiences and perspectives on the world as told by music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, visit Triloquy.org. You can find past opuses there, and you can also contribute to the Triloquy podcast there. In addition to your support, support for Triloquy comes from Springboard for the Arts, a local arts institution here in St. Paul, Minnesota, built to make sure that creators and artists like myself can make a living and continue to do the good work. For more information on them, visit SpringboardfortheArts.org. I also want to thank all of you who sent Christmas cards and holiday contributions and and gifts and all of those things. I'm I'm so grateful for you. I mean, when I was a kid, maybe when I was a teenager in my 20s, the Christmas cards didn't really seem like that big of a deal to me. But Mm -hmm. getting them now and, you know, in my 30s, the thought is really nice. So I really do appreciate each and every one of you listeners here on Troliqui who thought of us during the holiday season and decided to send us something. I have to uh, give a shout out to Caitlin, who sent a great care package, which I when when I was opening that up, I kind of felt like a kid on Christmas morning with yeah. the stocking, you know, yeah. because there was so many little goodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bitters, I had an old fashioned with that she made us some homemade bitters mm-hmm. and I had an old fashioned and I went, I could have been drinking this all the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're outstanding. Yeah. And plus that there was a bag of holiday cookies. Now you might not think any, you know, it's oh thank you, it's it's baked goods. Yeah, I ate that whole bag in one sitting. Sat on the couch and, and ate then, it all. <laughs> I did, I did. And then I sat there and I went, oh shit, I hope these aren't dosed because this is going <laughs> to be that would be something. This is going to be a long night <laughs> because you know if you were sitting there eating a bag full of cookies with some cannabis dosing or or something else. 
It was a lot of thoughts would be going through your I, mind. I would, sure. I would be saying some things. What are some of the things that you would say? Let's get into it. Is this my foot? <laughs> Is this really my foot? <laughs> anyway, yes. Thank you very much to Caitlin and everyone. My foot who, just uh, told me it was not my foot. <laughs> who, who who sent us things? I really appreciate y'all. Thank you for the continued support. Let's get into movement one. We made it to 2022, but not everyone did. We have to send a, a rest in peace and a rest in power to the now late Betty White. We know, uh, I know her work on the Golden Girls. That's basically, that, that's the the extent of, of what I know about Betty White's career, at least, you know, when I, when I heard the news, but it's really interesting how she, uh, especially in her latter years, became sort of a pop culture figure. Uh, the, the Saturday after her uh, her transition was announced, Saturday Night Live decided to, you know, re-air the episode that Betty White hosted. And, sure. you know, she's a, she was an old lady who gave old lady jokes, but she did it well. And, and she really uh, successfully accomplished remaining relevant all the way to the very end of her life. She was 99 years old. She almost made it three to 100. Weeks, yeah, just shy of three weeks away from her 100th birthday. 100 yeah. Birthday. It was Betty White's character on The Golden Girls uh, where I first got any idea of what Minnesota might be like <laughs> before I ever lived here. You know, I, mm -hmm. I knew about St. Olaf, Minnesota, which I don't guess is a real town. Maybe there's a town of 150 called St. Olaf. St. Olaf is the university down in Northfield. Yeah. Down in Northfield, uh, Minnesota. I've had the pleasure of uh, visiting there. And, you know, while a lot of that stuff I'm sure was blown out of proportion, Butter queens are very real sure. here. Uh, yeah. Lutefisk is very real here. There's so. grains of truth. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But what, what I wanted to uh, really focus in on uh, to honor the now late Betty White is something that I learned about that involved a black man way back in the day. I'm reading here from people.com. It says, Betty White once helped launch the career of a black tap dancer by hiring him for her variety show. Let me read a little bit here. Um, she says here, uh, let me see. Oh, sorry, this isn't uh, Betty White speaking. This is the writer, uh, but quoting, uh, I was on the show and they had some letters out of Mississippi and elsewhere that some of the stations would not carry the show if I was permitted to stay there. That was Arthur Duncan mm -hmm. uh, uh, being mm -hmm. quoted there. Um, and he goes on to say, well, Betty wrote back and said, needless to say, we use Arthur Duncan every opportunity we could. So let's put some context around this. We can today think about someone making the decision to keep this black person on or this trans person on or whoever the folks down in Mississippi. That's not me saying that. That's what Duncan said. Mississippi, goddamn. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, it's one thing to think about that in today's context. But this event took place back in 1954 when she mm -hmm. really could have paid the price and i'm not talking about the show being pulled or whatever you know the i'll, I'll say it you know the, the the good old boys are real now and they were very real back then i'm sure so they could have been out on a rail it yeah. could have big could have been big trouble for betty white certainly yeah. big trouble for arthur duncan but she stuck to her guns and said no he's gonna be on this show and y'all just have to fucking deal with it so this is my thing <laughs> this, this is my question is that level of accomplishment something that you feel like is out there today. 
again, going back to the downbeat where we're talking about, you know, free thought and not letting your decisions and, and thoughts be bound by the job itself and and only that. Do you think, you know, there are and I'm not asking you to, to cite examples, but just many behind the scenes things. Do you think that's the level of activism that uh, these past couple years, these past few years have inspired folks really putting it on the line like Betty White did so long ago? Well, I think that with a lot of the BLM protests and demonstrations, you saw that. Yeah. That there's, a, a, there's yeah, like a lot of- There was there were some of those uh, uh, black radio shows talking about the white protesters. Uh, DJ Envy and Charlemagne from The Breakfast Club said, I never knew sh- uh, skateboards were that strong, all that glass they were breaking. So <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't laugh, but it's just no, funny it, because being here on the ground in 2020, it was great to see the white accomplices who are you know at, you know so uh, uh, fired up mm-hmm. by the conversation and by the activism that they were out there on the front lines with the uh, umbrellas turned inside out and with the lasers yeah. and everything that you know so it was it was something and I think you know there are many 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 examples over history of white folks really putting it on the line for activism for civil rights and X Y and Z and Betty White is among them and I'm very very happy to have have learned that about her now. As we talk about and speculate about the many folks who are really putting it on the line for equity and liberation and all of those things, my opinion is that most people wouldn't do what she did. Certainly not back then, but even today, I feel like most folks wouldn't put it on the line in that way. Do you? Is that an inappropriate statement for me? What do you think about to if that, more people than not to would that do that level? You yeah. mean? Um, I think that. In my circles, that's yet to be seen because I do have to say that I am seeing white folks taking steps that are large for them. Yeah, and um, I and and I respect them for doing that. So I don't know when the day will come where they'll when when they might surprise you and 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 do something of that caliber. Mm-hmm. That I can't predict. I want to read a little bit more of. Uh... Uh, Arthur Duncan's words here before we uh, leave this accidental. Uh, He says, I credit Betty White for really getting me started in show business. People in the South, some of them resented me being on the show and wanted me thrown out. And it was never a question at all. And then it goes on to say, explaining the controversy, Betty White said, all through the South, there was this whole ruckus. They were going to take the show off the air if we didn't get rid of Arthur because he was black. I said, I'm sorry, but he stays. Live with it. And that's and that's on period. I'm let, let's let's celebrate and honor Betty White and let's take her step. And it's not only about black and white men. Men like us need to put it on the line when we see a boss or a superior or somebody talking to a woman some kind of way. Sure. You know, uh, straight folks and even uh, cis people, cis, even cis gay folks like myself. We need to step up and do something for the trans community, especially when we see some nonsense happening. Let's take a uh, let's take a cue. If I want to use a music word here, let's take a cue from Betty White and really amp up our allyship and even our accompliceship all the way to putting something on the line and to put somebody on. He had a whole career because of what she did standing up for him. And nothing happened to her career. She continued to be successful after putting it on the line. Yeah. Probably maybe even more successful than she would have been otherwise. Yeah. that's Imagine the different gigs and and the different opportunities she got based on her putting her foot down here. Yeah. One of the best uh, quotes that I saw from, uh, there was a, I, I follow a violist who said that 
he had the chance to play somewhere that she was performing and she asked if that was oh, where a, Betty White was performing. Yeah, it was that a viola or a violin and he said it's a viola and she said, Will you go out there and show the violins how it's done? Period. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, another great one that I saw was um it's a shame when they go so young like that. Yeah. Yeah. Because look, Prince said it, a lot of people have said it, age is a number. And yet she was ninety nine years old and uh you know died died of natural causes but she still had a lot of steam was working and speaking all the way up there to the very end if only we all you know can spend 99 years doing all of the different things that she did you know even on the show golden girls they had conversations back then that folks are still challenged with now you know when it comes to um relationships with uh queer folks queer family members um woman sexuality uh you know uh ageism of of course you know be so anyway shout out to um betty white um we honor her and wish her a, a safe voyage to transition out of this oh i didn't give it a sharp that gets i don't think i did i think it's a sharp of course to mm-hmm. the legacy of betty white a uh, uh, transition out of this one i actually found an excerpt from the betty white show in 1954 where arthur duncan was performing so we're going to listen to a little bit of that to get us to our next accidental Drop everything and let the harmony ring up to heaven. Sing, you sinners, just wave your arms all about. Let the Lord hear you sing for that music. Sing, you sinners. Sing, you sinners, sing. I like the title of that one. They need to bring that song into more churches. Listen, let me say this and then we go move on. This podcast is called Triloquy, right? Right. I don't care who advocates for me, who puts their neck out for me. I'm not literally tap dancing for none of y'all. <laughs> and that's just that. <laughs> so that's thought, that. That's that. I'm not saying nothing else. No shade to Arthur Duncan. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Arthur Duncan's all right. <laughs> oh, no, he was a very handsome man. Let's, I mean, shout, shout out to Arthur Duncan. Yes, indeed. Um, anyway. Let me, let, me, let me stop before I get in some trouble. Right on. Um, so uh, my next accidental, uh, before you get into yours, I wanted to offer another sharp this week um, that deals with a member of the Triloquy family. Uh, I think it was 2021 or maybe it was 2020. I had the extreme, extreme honor of having Wayne Shorter on Triloquy. Amazing, and, f- amazing ad. Yeah. And, and, and when he, um, when, when, when we were talking, he kept showing me these big paper scores to this opera he was working on, an opera called Iphigenia. Well, that opera premiered in November and uh, the World Tribune wrote a pretty cool article um, about his journey that I wanted to uh, share with everyone. Uh, let me read a little bit. It, it's a it's a transcription of a, a conversation, but I'll, I'll read a few of Wayne Shorter's words here. First of all, he talks about um, 
working on an opera and then how his career sort of took off. He says, I started experimenting with writing music when I was in high school. Before I was drafted into the U.S. Army, I was working on an opera called The Singing Lesson. I continued to write things down in a little book that I kept with me but never brought it out. Then I started getting auditions with big bands as a saxophonist. I joined Art Blakely's Jazz Messengers, and later on I joined Miles Davis's band. After that, I formed my own band called Weather Report. As time went on, I kept writing music in my little book. So even though the centerpiece of his career was being this incredible improviser, this incredible performer, he held on to that one little string that he started way back in high school. I wonder if, if you can speak to your career going one way, but hanging on to a thread that's always been there. Maybe for you, it's writing or yep. acting in the mirror. Do you do monologues at home? Or I, was something? Just, <laughs> I, I was just about to say theater and writing is the one thing that I'm holding yeah. on to. Yeah. yeah t- and tell me more and, and, and what ways, you know, well, when I moved here in 2006, I, I, I didn't do a show from that point on, and I started mm-hmm. to focus more on the writing. And uh, you, you hear composers and musicians talk about that all the time, about you know somebody uh, starts to do one thing and then they get overwhelmed by something else oh, and sure. it becomes something, it's just a side hustle. Yeah, yeah. And that's what happened. But um, I will say that I have sort of a Borodine thing going in that the little bit that I am writing, I really like, which is very different for me. Sure, sure. <laughs> so yeah, the the one or two things that I have spinning right now that are coming out, I'm really pleased with. That's awesome. It's interesting how those original loves, those joys don't ever really go away. You know, when I left the stage, I was like, well, I'll continue to play bassoon, but, you know, playing with orchestras and all that stuff is is done. And there, there was a time when I didn't really touch the bassoon all that much, maybe 13, 14 months where, you know, we didn't really talk. But mm-hmm. um, in, in these past this past year uh, specifically, getting the bassoon out has become more of a thing, you know, uh, during quarantine, performing uh, virtually for folks and, you know, other folks editing and putting together uh, virtual concerts of, right. of certain pieces and, you know, me doing stuff for the kids, getting to play a concerto last year. So as much as I center my activism and my content creation, my original love of uh, bassoon doesn't really go anywhere either. So sure. I, I thought that was really notable for uh, uh, Wayne to talk about that. And now, it, it, of course, it isn't always um, roses and, and, and daisies. He had a lot of challenges along the way. Uh, Wayne Shorter says here, in the midst of working on the opera, I got sick and had to go to the hospital. At one point, I was near death. In that condition, I had strange dreams, but I could see all of my friends in SGI and hear my wife, Carolina, chanting, nam yo renge kyo. When I woke up, I got back to work. Now, of course, wow. you know, I'm, I'm also a, a, a practicing Nietzschean Buddhist, so I understand the impact of the phrase, nam yo renge kyo. If anybody ever has any questions, just as an aside, if anyone ever has has any questions about that, please reach out because I love talking about it. Tina Turner has an incredible book about her Nietzschean um, Buddhist journey. And hmm. I, you know, I'm mentioning it, mentioning it here because it taps into one of the core concepts that uh, Wayne Shorter had to utilize to get over the challenge of his sickness. It's recognizing challenge as an opportunity. And we kind of talked about that earlier today uh, b- before dinner. I know that the idea of uh, the coal with pressure becomes a diamond and all, all of the, you know, the flower uh, growing up from the ground and the resistance from the earth that, you know, it takes to really bloom. I know that can 
sound a sort of trite to some people, but really applying that to myself and my approach to my work and my life has really transformed everything, seeing problems or challenges as opportunities. Maybe you're not completely there yet, or, or maybe you are, but I'm sure, I hope that there are ways in which you know some of the challenges you deal with day to day can be transformed into opportunities maybe maybe you not see this is garrett's nice way of introducing the fact that i came over here in a foul surly way today <laughs> all right i was yes you did. i was off <laughs> yeah but we had some tamales we had some nice food mm -hmm. and now we're sat here where my feet are finally warm again so i feel fine i feel better yeah. how about that but i'm not immune you know i'm and not, no, made, of, I'm of not made of stone yeah yeah we're, we're all human. We're all human. But again, I hope that, you know, you can think about challenges as opportunities, you know, in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Well, that's a nice idea. Yeah. We'll give that, we'll see how that works out. Okay. And you, and I don't want to get started, but I'm just <laughs> going to, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, frankly, you know, if you would dare try to, you know, flip that thinking why not? Why, why, why not see what's on the on the other side of that? If you're completely fine and your life is perfect right now, don't listen to what I'm saying. If that's not the case, why not consider thinking about challenges and adversity as opportunities to do something greater or to overcome that opportunity? Why not? Why not? Because I am still in that stage of thinking, um, why is this challenge keep happening? Mm -hmm. Why am I facing this on my own? Yeah. Yada, 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 yada. Yeah, yeah. Because you get to get to the solutions of those problems on your own. The opportunity to say, you see these problems I had? I traverse those. I body those challenges. That's, you know? That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. It, it wasn't just, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I just don't understand why the challenges continue. The same challenge. Yeah, yeah. We, we'll, we'll, we'll continue. We'll, we'll, we'll continue this conversation and that thing. But to get back uh, to this World Tribune article, um, Wayne Shorter, you know, spoke to accessibility in music. And I really appreciate his taking the time to do that uh, in this conversation. Um, the question from the World Tribune was, is accessibility something you wanted for Iphigenia to be accessible to all people? His, his response was, yes. Many of the old composers back in the day wanted their art to be accessible too. They wished for the general public to come to the opera. Mozart hung out in the streets and wanted his friends to come. Only the aristocracy and wealthy people put a barrier between the art and the general public. I like to say to them, get off your high horse, open the doors and let me in. I wanted to break that door down with Iphigenia. There is room for everyone. I think that's a point, mm -hmm. even if we want to get all the way back into the uh, so-called traditional Western classical music, the Mozart as, um, as is named here. I think that's something really important to understand that these folks wanted the homies to listen to their music. But, you know, folks like Mozart were trapped, I'll use that word, within the palaces and, and all of those people writing music yeah. for, for, for those folks. If we can normalize the idea that these so-called great composers that the institutions continue uh, to center wanted more broad accessibility, if that has to be the way, you know, <laughs> I, I, I say throw them away, you know, because there's too much right. new music. But if that's the way we have to go, I think that's a good 
way to go. Maybe maybe you can uh, bring that into your next the next time you air some Mozart. Say, listen, Mozart, one of the people on the streets, he wanted the homies to be listening to this music, but he was stuck in the X, Y, and Z, and you know all of that stuff. Um, I do think that. Uh, that story needs to be told of like when there was a public concert that there weren't just rows and rows of seats and people sitting there and being quiet. People were eating meme. muttons and <laughs> hollering at each other <laughs> and in fights and being involved with, you know, uh, not cat calling, but, you know, like responding to what's going on on the stage. Oh, you beat his ass, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and all of that stuff. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll uh, move on here. I just wanted to read the, uh, the, the final words uh, in this conversation from Wayne Shorter. Uh, he said, I want to continue to study. I have a lot of reading to do. I want to build on this achievement to achieve more. What do we say here? I always say there's always a little dust in the corners. Mm -hmm. There are countless uh, classically trained musicians and musicians of all sorts who can speak to the journey is never done. I'm always practicing. I'm always playing my scales. I'm always doing X, Y, and Z. And I want us to do that in the way that we think about DEI and diversity in the arts, how there's always more to go. We are never going to be done. This this journey will right. not be completed right. because as soon as we get liberation for uh, black folks in the concert hall, normalizing black music, we need to start getting into um, other marginalized communities and and uh, and having conversations about physical accessibility, having conversations about how does this orchestra concert engage people who can't hear? You know, like there's 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 always a conversation to have. And I hope that more folks can have that attitude when it comes to these conversations, not going toward an endpoint, but going on a journey, uh, a, a type of lifestyle swap you know when we talk about folks who diet you know it's it's not just a diet it's a lifestyle change right. or whatever the same same in this work we need we we need that attitude and i really appreciate uh wayne shorter um you know inspiring us all as we think about that i should definitely mention that uh this opera iphigenia was written in collaboration uh with the legendary esperanza spaulding who is an incredible musician. She's amazing. And Nietzschean Buddhist uh, in, in her own right. Oh, you know, someone else okay. who sees challenges as opportunity. And look at what she's been able to accomplish, you know? I saw her perform at the O'Shaughnessy here in town back in, say, 2014 or something like that. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She's brilliant. Concert. I had the opportunity to perform with her with the Detroit Always Symphony Orchestra. Always up in me. And One up I feel me. like I've, I've told this uh, story before, but after the last, because a lot of shows get multiple performances right okay mm -hmm. well this this show got one and the and the building was packed anyway as she's leaving the stage for the final time she turns around and sees me you know the black man in the orchestra points at me gives me the black power fist and i gave it right back and just <sighs> that moment mm -hmm. I, will, I will treasure that's one of the many moments i'll treasure forever being seen you know not only uh physically seen but i feel like spiritually seen she needed to turn around and say listen black man Mm. I see you in this orchestra, and I know sometimes these challenges are something else. But you need to see these challenges as an opportunity. You know, you can help. You can help these people. You can uh, make your career bigger. I'm putting words in her mouth, but anyway, that's how I interpret her acknowledging me. So anyway, as we uh, transition out of this accidental, we're going to listen to Wayne Shorter and Esperanza Spalding perform together. This is their uh, performance of a tune called Footprints.
Sexy. That's my word for that. Remember that episode of The Office where Michael Scott only hired a bassist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, for all day. She could she could have that party covered. That would couldn't be awesome. she? And then, you know, of course, adding in that soprano sax as played by Wayne Shorter. Man, shout out, shout out to them. Nam Yoho Renge Kyo. That's for everybody, including you, Scott, as you continue to think about why Appreciate you. Why you're in this repeated while you're vamping certain challenges. Hey, so that, to speak. You know, the the thing is is that at least I'm talking about it. Yeah, I could have come exactly. over. I could have come over here and said nothing's wrong. The day went fine. I agree, but I didn't. Well, you know, that's what friends are for. Come on, Dion. Yeah, that, right. that, that's my friend sound as well. Anyway, um, you have an accidental here. What accidental is this? I'm going to give it a sharp. Uh, also, while we were thanking Caitlin, I forgot to thank uh, my friend over at the Nightlight Factory for the Christmas gift that I received from the Nightlight Factory. Scared of the dark, are it's, you? It's uh, it's very. It was very sweet. Need a, little, was, need a little night light in the evening? I'm going to go ahead and talk about this accidental. <laughs> what you got? Um, what would you say if I told you that there was a group of 52 black wind players and you could, uh, uh, w- would you think about auditioning and playing with a, a group of black players that have the goal of making this music more accessible and reaching out to the younger set. Are we talking about a chamber group, an expanded chamber group, an orchestra, or some other type of ensemble? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Nashville's Black Wind Black Wind Symphony. Mm, see, a wind symphony, definitely. Yes. Aims to inspire a new generation of classical musicians. And the synergy between you know the, the, the article that you brought in and the things that you're talking about uh, are just echoed here. Uh, Euf- it was uh, started by a euphonium player. The founder is Bruce Ayers. And he called up a friend of his named Ashley Crawford, who plays flute. And he said, I've got this idea, but it's not going to work unless you are my CEO. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And she said, you know, she, so she talks about, you know, the pressure of being a black flute player and, and a woman on top of that playing this music in a room that the pressure was, you know, doubled or quadrupled even. And it's representation too, because she says right here, growing up, I never saw that representation of a black classical female flutist taking the world by storm. This was a lane I had to begin creating on my own. And when you asked me about you know, Wayne Shorter and Esperanza doing this opera without the help of an opera company. Yeah, I didn't mention that, but yeah, that, that's an important point. You know, um, they did it on their own. My my point is more and more black people and, peop- and artists of color are doing it for themselves, are going out and doing it on their own. Like she said here, this was a lane that I had to create. Yeah. And so here is this ensemble that their whole idea is to reach out, make it more accessible, and give an example to young black people that, you know, you can do this as well. Yeah. But the cool thing about this ensemble is that the band is made up of people who are working during the day. Yeah. They're out being engineers and teachers and uh, business owners and entrepreneurs, and they're coming together for that love. Again, that original thing that you can't quite shake, you know, despite where your career goes or whatever. Yeah. So imagine... Also, uh, imagine somebody my age who 
maybe only has a, 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 a doesn't have the full grasp of playing with an ensemble like that. But maybe you could go and level up with yeah, them, you know, exactly, and audition and get better and play with an ensemble. Yeah. So, what would you say if they put together uh, a, a program that, how should we say, is progressive? Okay. Or is representative? Yeah. This, of, this ensemble, right? Of yeah. the ensemble, you're going to go and audition. You're going to go and play, or at least going to go and buy a ticket. This podcast is called Triloquy, right? So mm-hmm. I'm going to say this. Y'all can kill me if y'all want to. I'm not going to audition for a community ensemble because I've made my, just in the same way that these people have made careers out of being an engineer and X, Y, and Z, I'm, I made a career out of playing the bassoon. So I would show up and say, I, I am going to be a part of this. So where do y'all need the help? Do y'all need me to play bassoon? Do y'all need me on the flute line? I can give you some oboe if y'all need, you know, like I would, it wouldn't just be a matter of me auditioning and trying to get in. I would be involved, even if I'm not playing, let me file the paperwork, let me do something. And I know they have all sorts of folks down there in Nashville doing that, but I think it's it's so incredible. I played in a, a community band. It, you know, I was the only black person in it. But uh, uh, you know, in addition to uh, going to school, even as early as seventh grade, you know, like I, I loved playing. So I was a part of the shout out to the Bartlett Community Band, a suburb of uh, Memphis, and it it was just what I had to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, if 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 something like that were to happen a little closer here, certainly a wind ensemble, because I have a special love for band music right. and uh, band compositions. Definitely. I want to um, point to something else that uh, Ashley Crawford says. Again, I'm reading here from WPLN.org. She says, it's a world where perfectionism is expected. And being the only black woman in a room full of mostly white people um, feels like there was an increased scrutiny. Um, she says she felt like she was under a magnifying glass. Right. That's something that we need to think about a little more intentionally, especially when we talk about orchestras and organizations that give us fellowship programs. You know, the fellowship that uh, I did with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra years ago was particularly challenging because I was showing up prepared. I was practicing my ass off. And if a note was half a cent sharp or something, like I could just feel that scrutiny. And mm. and and it wasn't just because I was black. I was so young back then. So, you know, all these musicians who are 50, 60 years old, you know, just fit the feeling of them looking down at you, like, mm. you know, in, in a in a real way. And when we talk about equity, diversity, all of these things, we have to acknowledge you know the pressure that the unique pressure musicians are under in in these ensembles and how not feeling like you have folks there with you you know at least in spirit can add to that it's it's a, a very important thing you know if if anybody is thinking about some sort of fellowship or internship or whatever to uh, increase diversity mm-hmm. it has to be more than one person it needs to be you need to find the money to have four or five so that there is a community there and they have that support system because feeling alone in those things is one of the many reasons why a lot of folks just drop out of it. And that's not only music. If you feel alone in a particular field or job or whatever, and you have the opportunity to not feel alone, 
you're going to take that opportunity. Most people would take that opportunity. Yeah. And that's what happens all the time in the art. So I just hope folks will understand and, and really acknowledge that aspect of it. Uh, another great point that Bruce Ayers brings up is uh, he says people don't really look at us as performing classical music or having an interest in this genre. So it was really important for us to create something that was unique that gave us a voice and a chance. So when we talk about uh, musicians of color forming their own ensembles yeah. and operating outside of the bigger uh, established, do you think that that's going to be the way forward? If, I do. Yeah, if, I do, but if, go on. If integration and inclusion in the existing spaces isn't happening quick enough, do you see both happening or dropping trying to get into the established spaces and doing your own thing is going to be the path. Wow, there I mean, I don't I don't want to spend the time really thinking about all of the connections, but you know, think about the creation of race records at the beginning of the 20th century and how segregation separated white banjo players and whatever, right. you know, from the black folks who were doing the exact same thing. And then the way genre evolved from there, especially black music. So I don't mm -hmm. necessarily think that one will fall off, but one will become more relevant, more popular, you know, in the same way that we have seen hip hop evolve from that shared origin and become the top genre of the world. Yeah. Not uh, certainly not classical, not country music, not uh, what people call pop, not any of this stuff, but hip hop. So I think that is what will happen. And the traditional uh, institutions need to understand that and hop on to the fact that, you know, our our survival, our relevance is uh, is is at risk here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, on top of that, we can't overlook the fact that we're not talking about an orchestra. We're talking about a band. We're talking about a wind ensemble. And even you know, well-established groups like the Dallas Wind Symphony. I think they're called the Tokyo Kosei Wind Orchestra. You know, there aren't that many professional uh, bands, wind ensembles around the world, but even they have to fight for equal placement in programming. Hmm. You know, you, I'm sure you don't air a band piece every day, you know, and I, and it comes no. around, but you know, it that that in itself is even seen as peripheral. So this all black wind ensemble, they have multiple hills to climb, multiple opportunities to uh to traverse. But I I, I just didn't want to not acknowledge the uh, unique challenge of wind band because no matter what color the wind band is, they're they're still fighting for their equal placement. Sure. That's why I'm hoping that somebody from a label hears them and gives them a deal. Yeah. Uh, Let's get some recordings. Bands and wind ensembles are very important. The vast majority of wind players, myself included, came up through band. And coming up through band means you are performing music that is on the more contemporary side, right. you know, which right. which means you're playing music that may sound a little bit more contemporary. So our ears are conditioned away from centering the Haydn and Mozart aesthetic. So when we have to step back, if we make it into the profession of playing in orchestras and, and center that, there can be some dissonance there. There was certainly some dissonance there for me, especially as a programmer. I was used to hearing um, so much more so-called crunchy music as just normal that the first time someone said, oh, that might not be radio friendly, it didn't really make a whole bunch of sense to me. So I, I think it's important not only to ride for the black ensembles, but to ride for any and every band and wind ensemble, because that music has its own composers and its own history and its own legacy that is equal, if not greater, when we're talking about American classical music than the legacies of all of these other 
um, types of orchestras. Again, some some folks call themselves a wind orchestra. So not only decolonizing the phrase classical music, but decolonizing the word orchestra, because orchestras can be many different types of things that can sound many different types of ways. Anyway, shout out to everyone down there in Nashville. I can't wait to uh, hear a recording. I can't, you know, there's a really cool band uh, and bassoon, uh, a concerto for bassoon, but it's bassoon and band and not bassoon for orchestra. Mm. Hey, give me a call. It's right. a work by Erica Wazen. Let's do it. But you can also, you can read the article in the link that Garrett is going to provide in the description, but WLPN.org also has an audio version that you can listen to. It's just four minutes. Yeah. So check it out. All right. Well, we're going to um, transition into the second movement with not only a piece of band music, but a piece of band music by a black composer. This is a trumpet concerto. Trumpet and band is called Pyrotechnics, a work by Kevin Day to get us into the second movement of this opus. Pyrotechnics by Kevin Day is performed by the students at Texas Christian University. Bravo. We're here in the second movement where we're taking the second ending. We take a piece of music that we've been repeating over and over all week. And instead of repeating it fully again, we take the second ending and talk a little bit about why we were repeating it. I'll go ahead and uh, get us started this week. So um, the first day of the year is also the final day in the celebration of Kwanzaa is guided by the uh, guiding principle of Imani or faith, you know, to uh, I, I can't recite the, the ancient texts verbatim, but, you know, having faith in the struggle, having faith in the work that we all do, uh, knowing that it's going to result in something. You know, the 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 going back to Buddhism for a minute, you know, the mystic law of cause and effect, knowing that the things that you are putting in motion will manifest because every cause has an effect. So, you know, Imani, having faith in that as it uh, relates to the struggle for liberation and, mm -hmm. and equity. Anyway, so I was uh, celebrating Imani on uh, January 1st. And every January 1st, I returned to a band piece, speaking of band, um, by a composer named Sean O'Loughlin. It's called Imani. And this is a very important piece to me because when I was in ninth grade, my band director, who was not a black woman, shout out to uh, Mrs. Turner, she made a point every holiday concert and, and every opportunity she had to infuse something black or that something that spoke to her mostly black student body and at the mostly black school that um, I went to. And, you know, my ninth grade year for the holiday concert, she brought on this tune called Imani. And I have not forgotten about it ever since. And I'm so grateful to teachers like her to expose students because you never know where that can go. This piece of music has been included in lots of my radio programming. Like I said, I listen to it for my own enjoyment um, every year. And I share it uh, with everyone that I talk uh, about uh, Kwanzaa with, because mm -hmm. this is one of the examples, you know, even if all the way to the, you know, it's not even a professional uh, band 
piece of music, all the way back to the high school band, maybe even the middle school band programs, you can engage your students and the communities they represent through your programming all the way at that level. And this piece of music is how my band director did Once Upon a Time. And like I said, it's been a huge part of my life ever since, however many years it's been, since I've been in, mm -hmm. in, in the ninth grade. So we're going to listen to a little bit of this to celebrate Imani, all the band directors doing the good work and the great memories I have with this piece of music. Sure. You hear the drums, you know, you gotta, you know, it's not any old percussionist who can do that. So in putting this piece of music in front of your students, you're also reinforcing groove and, and, um, and musical communication, you know, cause the drummers need to be listening to the solo piccolo player and, and all of those That's things. Point. Really, really, really incredible music. Shout out to the Washington winds for, uh, creating that recording. I mean, when we, when I was at NPR and you produced, uh, my, uh, uh, Kwanzaa radio thing, this piece of music was a part of it. That opened was it, it. Not, you know? That opened so, it. So again, do not ever under, if you're a teacher out there, you have students, do not ever underestimate the opportunity and the responsibility you have. I'm really, you know, not trying to be emotional and choked up here, but my life could have been many different ways if I had band directors who didn't give a damn, much less a school that didn't offer a music program. But instead of those things happening, I had a great music program in school and one where my teachers cared about cultural competency. You know, we argue about Beethoven being black now but but this lady you know put that in in my mind way back when we would play a band arrangement of the ode to joy on every uh black history month program so you know hmm. th there are so many seeds that you can plant and seeds that will manifest in many different ways she didn't know nothing about me programming for radio when i was uh 13 14 years old but she had an impact on that so we need to always think about that as we um engage our students and even as we engage each other the the, the seeds we plant you know, you, 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 you never, you, you never know. So again, shout out to Mrs. Turner. Incredible work. Imani by Sean O'Loughlin. All right. What you got? What you been listening to this week? I'm going to take you back to 1992 when I was a fresh faced overnight jazz host okay. for the first time at KVNO in Omaha, Nebraska. And you want to talk about, um, not having an idea of where you might, your career might sure, end up. Sure. Uh, if it wasn't for my parking issues and getting that internship on campus yeah uh who knows i might be you know selling fire extinguishers somewhere or, or patio <laughs> furniture who knows sure. Wor working in a bowling alley i don't yeah. know yeah um but one night i was introduced um just by virtue of spinning the cd to wes montgomery yeah and his name became to me and well to a lot of people just syn synonymous with jazz guitar yeah so this past christmas i got a very generous gift i got a record 
called Boss Guitar, which was uh, recorded in 1963. And this is is a golden era of of jazz recordings. You know, Blue Note was doing some amazing things in this era. Riverside label was, uh, I think they were exclusively jazz, if I'm not mistaken. But at any rate, um, I'm putting out some, I want to put out some good here in this first uh, Triloquy Opus of the Year. Uh, I've been listening to Besame Mucho, which is Kiss Me A Lot. So I'm putting that out. <laughs> Positive energy. I'm Speaking it into existence. I'm putting it out there. And, you know, there, go, there go radar right there. He can Besame Mucho right now. <laughs> he, he does. He does. <laughs> and uh, there's just so many uh, points of, there's just so many intersections and moments of synergy here because, you know, he's from Indianapolis. And when he first started playing in clubs and all that, he was just working to support his growing family during yeah, the day. Yeah. And people at night are going, you know, you can make a lot more money if you, you know, if you focused on jazz and went around and started playing, recording. And that's what he did. Um, became a, a huge name in jazz. Uh, so it sort of reminds me of what the folks with the uh, that new uh, Black Wind Symphony in mm-hmm. Nashville are doing. You know, they're doing their job and then playing for the love of doing it later on. Doing what they got to do, yeah. Do what they have to do. Um, so uh, I'm really excited to share Besame Mucho as my second ending. listen to jazz so-called jazz i'll say from this area from era rather i find myself sort of breaking down the different ingredients i love the boom 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 ding boom 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 bass i love the uh of course the melody that uh that west montgomery is playing here the percussion chum chaka chum chum chaka i mean it's just it's it's a classic part of my experience you know growing up in memphis a home of the blues you know that sort of aesthetic is very easy to hear, you know, even live going into bars and and that sort of thing. It's it's really incredible. You know, I, what I want to ask you, what, what what listening to this made me think about, you you know, I'm there, there's certain phrases that I won't say are jarring to me, but sort of get my attention and get me thinking. And one of those is jazz. You know, referring to this as jazz. I'm I'm not you know the jazz man. I'm I'm not the the expert, but I've heard a lot of people talk about that term and how jazz really is American classical. We stretch mm-hmm. a lot here on this podcast and get into um, hip hop being classical and all of these different things. But jazz for me, so-called jazz, again, is the uh, easy example of how we can decolonize that phrase classical music to include more stories and perspectives and aesthetics. What would be your, going getting back on the elevator, we talk about the elevator pitches. Mm-hmm. What's your first floor to the seventh floor explanation of jazz as american classical uh we pioneered we created it we pioneered it americans drove it yeah uh and that tracked me afro-american specifically but yes americans 
Oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah, I. No, no, I, yeah. I, I, no, 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 yeah. I, I did mean black well, you people specifically. To, I, have to, I just have to say it. <laughs> you, you do. You but do. Anyway, yes, we 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 Americans created it, codified and, it, and it know. has and it has been emulated and copied and bastardized in some instances all around the world. Um, in fact, when I was the jazz director at KVNO for a time, on our playlist, I even included the quote down at the bottom. America's indigenous art form. Yeah, yeah. One of America's of indigenous art forms, but indigenous nonetheless. Yeah. So that, in my mind alone, reaches classical level. Boss Guitar by Wes Montgomery. Yeah, it, I, I'm, I'm going to, you, you played another track for me that I'm going to be repeating. Maybe oh, it'll be my accidental here yeah. in, a, in, a, in a week or two. But yeah. yeah, Bumping on Sunset. Yeah, yeah check I, that one out too. The thing about Wes though is that he had such a revolutionary way of playing. He didn't use a pick. He used his thumb and and you know palm from muting and things like that, but he was able to get really interesting octaves in the way that he would play. So-called um, extended techniques, maybe. And, <laughs> sure, I guess. Yeah, but um, he had a he just had a way about him. He had a touch on that thing. Yeah, yeah, Rob. I don't know. I don't. Do, do you know if he's still living? Or he's not. not. You know, well, no. rest in peace and rest in power to Wes Montgomery. And thank you for giving the world so many incredible recordings before you left us all. Shout out to America's indigenous art form, one of America's indigenous art forms. Let's work to get those aesthetics into our classical spaces because they deserve to be there more than Rachmaninoff and all these folks. Anyway, anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, today's guest, I am very honored and proud and happy uh, for the first guest of 2022 on Triloquy to be Maria Issa. Maria Issa is a local artist. The first time Dell heard about her, see, I was at work fooling around with NPR and he went to go see Eric B and Rakim and Maria Issa opened for Eric B and Rakim. She has uh, collaborated with all sorts of artists and been on so uh, many stages. Uh, she's in my cohort um, for Springboard for the Arts. We we have a, uh, mm. a, a fellowship which came with a grant and all of those things. So incredible local artists and her work is so revolutionary. She has changed so many communities with her music, with her art. She wants to take it to the next level and she is officially running for state senate here in Minnesota. So we talk about her music. We talk about what she wants to get into and do as a candidate uh, and hopefully um, state senator and what all of that means under the under the construct and, and uh, umbrella of the arts and being an artist. You know, again, we, we talk about that thing that is always tugging at you no matter where your career takes you. Mm -hmm. I feel like activism was that for so many artists. You know, we talk about Nina Simone. Um, I'm gonna be talking about uh, Margaret Bonds at the Apollo um, here in a little while. You know, there are so many arts activists out there and Maria Issa is one of them. Her activism has taken her all the way to making campaign signs and door knocking and doing all that. So I'm supporting in every way uh, that I can and I'm glad to um, share her story here on Triloquy to get us into my conversation with Maria Issa. We're going to listen to uh, one of her tracks. This is a really cool piece of music called Mad Accomplished because that's exactly what she is. So here's Mad Accomplished by Maria Issa and here's my conversation with her.
You know, we've always been a diverse community, uh, being, you know, born and raised right on the West Side. It's been tremendous for me to see the evolution of families, um, generations of families mm-hmm. uh, working so hard to maintain their community that they've built. When I'm talking about like Mexican, American, the first migrant farm workers that came yeah. in the early 1900s to then the new wave of of Latinos and the the waves of of the Southeast Asians and the brothers and sisters that have made community from crossing over from the Rondo to even Gary, Indiana, and Chicago. We've always been an embraceful community Mm -hmm. um, of building with community, not changing the community. So there's this wave of, yeah, gentrification Um, A lot of our elders um, who are still living and and maintaining their roots on the West Side uh, have been pressuring the new generation like you can't leave. And I'm like, I don't want like I moved back to the West Side specifically right when I found out I was having my my daughter. Yeah. And uh, my husband's a Minneapolis to Brooklyn Park. You know, his mm-hmm. he he's has it tatted on his neck. You know, like <laughs> he is a warrior of Minneapolis. And um, so I was like, we do things different on this side of the city. Yeah. And a lot of folks go, what do you mean this? I'm like, we're the only neighborhood of St. Paul that's across the side. That's on the right. opposite side of the river. So when you see folks cross over it's mostly about are you gonna are you gonna maintain the west side to be rooted with these fam- these families that have built this with the traditions of our comunidad mm-hmm. also are you going to embrace with the other families that migrated here and have established and made their businesses alongside the communities that have built yeah um the what the west side is and so there is a there is a seesaw effect happening just like in every community that's being gentrified uh but the west side has been organizing we've seen with the rent stabilization the organizing that's happened um with with the last election mm-hmm. um folks and and shout out to wesco shout out to west side yep. community organization who really took initiatives of stories from the elders to the the young and the new uh, leadership roles through our youth to be active and understand about policy and understand about how to be civically engaged yeah. so that we can still call the West Side our home and not just a place that we were raised on, yeah. but a place that we are continuing to build and remind folks of our history. Yeah, and I think all of that culture just really feeds into the, uh, the, the general feeling of the West Side. I've lived in many cities around mm-hmm. the country you know, moving around everywhere. And this is the first time living in this neighborhood, specifically the first time where I sort of felt like, well, this feels like home. Maybe yeah. I'm home. And I just love that uh, there's so much that goes into maintaining the the community aspect of this neighborhood, the culture, the the family-centric uh, nature of it all, not in uh, a politically conservative mm-hmm. way, but in a way that actually serves yeah. people and, and doesn't use the idea of, of family as a prop or anything. Right. We're, we're definitely going to get into some more of those uh, political discussions. It feels weird to, to use politics, the it's word crazy. politics, but it really is that. It is. Um, we're going to get into it, but I wanted to start um, by talking about music for uh, a little bit. So first and foremost, um, I wonder what your first musical memory is. We all mm. have, you know, different paths as artists that started from somewhere. So I wonder what that somewhere is for you. My home. Mm. 
the traditional music of Puerto Rico, you know, mm -hmm. bomba, plena, salsa, especially the holiday season. You know, Puerto Ricans, we're known to have, we take holidays to the max. Yeah. It's like, whether you believe in this or not, we celebrate three months of holidays. That means that it's food and love and and something for everyone to embrace. Yeah. Um. So I just remember like being a child in holiday season and like my grandfather playing instruments and dancing with us and and singing and my grandmother who sang on my paternal side. I mean, our, my paternal and maternal side, they all migrated here together like mm -hmm. when my parents moved here. So it, the wave of Puerto Ricans and New Yorkans and the diaspora <laughs> just like straight up in our home um, was so, so alive. I mean, we had Tito Puente in our house and Celia Cruz and mm. folks that were touring and and our parents promoting these shows that uh, that they could feel their culture and celebrate it in live effect because there was no salsa happening here mm -hmm. in Minnesota in the 80s and the 90s. They were right. the ones that were connecting with the promoters or cooking for the artists hosting those after parties. Mm -hmm. So from the holidays of like the abuelos and the familia, the tios and the tias, the titis, it it flowed into like a huge arts, Latino arts mecca. Yeah. Of like, whoa, I'm over here at like four years old chilling with Tito Puente after their show at, while my parents are doing the after party and feed my grandmother's catering and feeding the food and coffee and yeah. rum and and live music. And then boom, Eddie Palmieri is here and I'm like seven years old and yeah, he did a concert and now the after party's at my tia's loft in Lower Town um, and there's food and there's music and, and uh, that's where the music started, man. It yeah. just, it was home. Yeah, yeah. What you're reminding me of is something that we affirm all the time on this show is how that phrase classical music means so much more than what we've been taught. It's not just Beethoven and Mozart. No. I think you're speaking to classical music. It's a different culture, mm -hmm. but it's, it, it is just that. With that in mind, I wonder how you connect your early experiences with the way your career went. People who want to play the violin professionally, for example, they mm -hmm. have conservatories and things to go to. What did the journey look like for you considering your foundations in that, what we're going to call Puerto Rican classical music and yeah, classical Afro culture? Afro-Puerto Rican, yeah. Afro-Boricua music. It started in a nonprofit performing arts school that was founded by my mother and my aunt. Mm. They came from New York and Puerto Rico, where you go to New York, our culture is there. There's yeah. schools, you know, there's the community. It's alive every day while you're just walking down the bodega. In Minnesota, everything's frozen. Right. And we're inside. <laughs> even, in, even in the summertime, sure. for our culture to be frozen. and. We were, I was a young girl studying jazz and tap and getting involved in like the dance programs with my cousins. And my mother recognized my aunt, who was a professional singer and dancer. And she was just like, these, our kids are putting on these tutu and doing these tap dances with mm -hmm. these lipsticks on and they're five years old. This ain't it. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, uh -uh. You know, like they have, no, and there's a different, there's no connection. Like we were learning about tap more with my aunt in our home and in after school uh, about the history and why the footsteps and the footwork and cha-cha and salsa. And 
we didn't learn the history in the dance. It was like you pay someone an hour and you're mm-hmm. cute and you're a kid and one, two, one, two, right? So my aunt and my mother, who's not the artist, she is, you know, a, a social justice activist, community leader, worked in, in, in the state, you know, first Latina appointed uh, as director of Office of Equal Opportunity in the 80s. And so she was just like, I can figure out how we need to find philanthropic endeavors to support this yeah because this is what we our kids need to identify especially within our black and brown and indigenous community because mm-hmm. they want to box us in when being puerto rican i'm like we're all of that like yeah. we, we, it was like <laughs> i mean my uncles is it got like i got the darkest shade of brown or the lightest shade you sure, know and so sure. it, it was evident where they said we're opening up a performing arts school that is going to be called the larco Edis center for the arts with a mission to preserve and to uh, and to highlight Afro Caribbean and Afro Puerto Rican Latino culture. Yeah, and so it was always Black identity and roots and Indigenous roots of our of our of our of our dances of our music, and that's where it cultivated. It was brought up by our own community, which engaged with everybody else around that was doing similar, whether it was the Asian. I mean, we housed in that studio space so long, and now it's turned into the Borinquen Cultural Center. Um, but I was raised in that space. I became an artistic director at 19. I started wow. writing grants at you know 15 years old so that we can get bomba drums and my mother and Robin Hickman, the community uh, organizers within the black and brown community bringing arts and culture at the Ordway. Mm-hmm. And so those are our spaces and our stages that our leadership told us, these are yours. Don't let anybody tell you that this stage isn't yours. Yeah. Don't let anybody tell you that you can't play on these drums as loud as you want to. And if you do, we got a whole village. Uh huh. And that's what it's been. It's been village. Yeah. So, I want to unpack this idea of the different shades of culture, something that I'm thinking a lot about for 2022, the new year and moving forward mm-hmm. is more class solidarity and bridging bridges mm-hmm. across different cultures. I wonder what it's looked like for you um, as an artist and as an activist being the bridge between, you know, the black folks in rap, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the Latinx, uh, the Latinidad cultures mm-hmm. when it comes to music, maybe even some of the white folks here mm-hmm. in Minnesota. How do you manage to bridge all of these communities to together toward the same goals. I always like to say that there's two types of human beings in this world. Those who have soul and those who don't. Okay, amen. Get into it. may the ones (laughs) that don't have fine soul, may they, by by the grace of the power of the ancestors to unify, Mm -hmm and be celebrated through us living now, may they find the soul. Yeah. You know, the bridge is about humanity and recognizing history. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna go to the, the base of the drum beats. They're indigenous and they're, they're tribal, whether it's from Africa connecting over here on this side to the opposite side, we yeah. all have a drum. Mm-hmm. So if, if when people feel the rhythm of their drum and, and there's love there, their soul. So how does it connect? It's as simple as that. I've been performing on a drum since I was five years old in this state, in this the state, the land of the Dakota, you know, mm-hmm. and bridging with the, the the nations 
uh, the tribal nations throughout the country, such as like Anishinaabe right outside, you right. know? And so right. it, it's, it's, it's always been a connection within the drum and fighting for humanity to live peacefully. So it's that's the bridge, man. The bridge is the medicine and the music. Mm-hmm. The bridge is being able to communicate through the language that music is. And so when we're talking about how are we getting hip hop, that hip hop is jazz. <laughs> jazz yeah. is is bomba, you know, yeah. mondombe. You can keep going. It's tribal. Yeah, yeah. So considering what you have affirmed, folks with soul and folks without, you know, <laughs> how can we work on whoever we're talking about when we talk about the folks without? I guess from my perspective, I'm thinking a lot about those deeply traditional classical institutions, mm-hmm. the orchestras and and all of those sorts of things. What's your what's your vision as far as um, expanding the multiplicity of of black and brown culture within those spaces mm-hmm. as well, the spaces that no, don't necessarily have the the soul as you've described history Mm. and leadership acknowledging that there's courses that need to be taught Mm -hmm. about history yeah and they need to be taught by the people who have been surviving the history Mm -hmm. i have been at mcphail uh, uh, I've been between, you know, Lincoln Center, the Smithsonian. I've performed in so many different settings, whether it be hip hop blended with classical or 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 traditional uh, gospel mixed mm-hmm. with concert chorale. So the experiences is about recognizing where the history is, yeah, and and respecting that. We can talk and go to Ghana and listen to the best classical music that's been written by sure. Ghanaian folks. Right. You know, shout out to 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 to, to uh, Kwame Ahmed and his papa. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there there's a connection between when we take time to be able to just have conversations and hold conversations. Those are the entries of developing and building. Yeah. I'm so tired of being like we have to kick ourselves into the door. We're gonna get our. We're gonna get through the door. Mm-hmm. Like, um, like that's been done before. <laughs> yeah, we need to be building. Yeah, we need to be building blocks and and creating our own doors that are full circle and not squared and that are that are not even gated. It's embracing, and that's how I look at when there's a a a classical uh, institution to a a a nonprofit just building it up. They need each other to sustain. Yeah. Um, within the classical sector, you need you need the true leadership of the roles of where that music has been rooted yeah. and taught. And and you can't erase history. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, in understanding history, that is a, a great jumping off point for us to look at the future and, and how we want to change things and what we want things to look like. So to transition into um, the more political side of our conversation, I wonder... If you could talk about the decision to decenter music and to run for state senate, I mean, as you've already said here, you've been at the Smithsonian, you've mm-hmm. been here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dell first learned about you, uh, opening up for Eric B and Rakim, you know. So you've <laughs> yeah. been on stage with hip hop royalty, not just rappers, but you know. So you have been doing incredible things in music, and still you have decided to. I won't say put to the side, but to decenter for the sake of running for state senate. I mean, what, what, where did that decision come from? I can't even say that it's decentered. It's like it is decentered. Okay. It's like there. I'm creating a soundtrack 
through a another platform. Hip hop to me has always been political. Mm, it, yeah, you're right. You're I got right. engaged in hip hop just as much as I got engaged in bomba mm -hmm. because they are music of resistance. They are they are our 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 weapons of peace, our tools of resistance. Yeah. So like you can't rip out bomba, you can't rip out hip hop. I mean, you can't hip hop jazz or tools of resistance yeah. of history of our our people unifying in hard times or unifying to celebrate what we've been surviving. Yeah. And so I'm centered to run for Senate through the music that has been flowing through my veins, through the lyrics that I've been writing since a child, mm -hmm. through the stories that we have been telling of our ancestors. That's political. Yeah. I wrote an album in 2009 called Street Politics. And I remember being on the almanac of TPT, um, PBS, the local ch station, and, and being invited to talk about my album called Street Politics. And they, you know, what it was to you. And M oh, you're an MC. So you know, I don't like to be called a master of ceremonies. Mm hmm. That to me, master is a word that I, I get a little triggered by. Uh, okay? Me too. <laughs> All right. So I said, I'm a message carrier. Okay. And what politicians are supposed to be, are carriers of a message, are to be fighting with the message that they're carrying from the people, from the community. So I see when I when I when I've made my visits into that capital, when I have stood in solidarity, whether it be union workers, whether it be uh, folks fighting for for medicine by my side, such as insulin, whether mm -hmm. it be for mothers that have lost their children who have been killed by by the system's law. OK, when 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 we have been in there fighting for our, our women's rights, yeah. when we have been throwing conversion therapy out the dang door, mm -hmm. you know, th it's always been music there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's and always been a part of the story. It's always been a part of the story. But I also see folks that forget about communicating with their circles and their people. Yeah. Yeah. And a big part of what we talk about as musicians or as an artist of, of, of different different fields of work is putting our lenses to express what's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. When you talk about uh being on the ground and talking with, you know, talking to people, connecting with communities, that's really the main thing that has gotten me interested in your campaign. You are just here on the streets, you know, someone who we can connect with and and talk to and learn from. Um, I don't know. So with all that being said, mm -hmm. I don't know my state senators. I know a lot of people don't know. A lot of people may even feel apathetic mm -hmm. about the whole process unless mm -hmm. it comes time to vote for, for president. Yeah. How are you traversing that specific challenge, getting people excited again or at the very least interested about state senator politics, that sort of thing? It's just being myself, centering to listen to folks and being honest with, about the process. It's okay if you don't know. We're mm -hmm. all learn we're 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 in a system that was built for us not to know. Yeah. So let's get involved in knowing. Yeah. And it's okay to not know everything. We're not here. We're, we're, we're born to always listen and learn. Mm -hmm. So I'm learning from those who have been speaking to say, I want to get involved. I've never been a part of this process. Can I be a part of this process? Yeah. And I'm also at the same time taking a leadership role being like, yes, you are. 
And I, I, I'm here for the next generation and I'm here for the elders and I'm here for the millennials like myself that have been questioning, well, how can we do this? Or why are we still living in these conditions? Right. And it's the normal everyday folks. It's the it's communicating and being present. And it's not for just a photo op here. Mm -hmm. We're not out here for photo ops. We're actually out here because we're tired of having to fight for justice. Mm -hmm. Okay, whether it be housing, education, just to live. All right, brother. So like my whole goal is my whole goal is. It's not about Maria getting in that seat. It's about a representation of a girl from the West Side, a girl from St. Paul, Minnesota, who has always had goals being crossed off a list. And if I don't cross it off, I don't take it off. I just keep it there until I can. Yeah. And it's taken a village for me and embracing my my work and my goals, whether it be music, whether it be in broadcasting, producing, uh, youth work, all right? There's always been a community behind me. And it's my challenge not to keep a community because I got community. Yeah. It's it's the challenge is to get com get folks who have been misrepresenting this community mm -hmm. out of there. Okay? By the new wave, by recognizing that certain goals that we had in community that were supposed to work out mm -hmm. didn't or were forgotten about. Yeah. Yeah. So let's not attack everybody. Let's not go in into battle rap because I'm a battle rapper. I grew up as one. So <laughs> if you want to drop some bars, we can go there. But I don't honestly want to go like that. Sure. I want it to be represented in a peaceful manner so our youth recognize how they can do what they want to do and they can fight for what they want to fight for in a system that has not allowed us to be in those positions as a majority. When we're a majority now, that word minority well, let, 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 that's yeah. that's that's like an erasure of a word for us. No, there is no minority in anything. Uh -huh. When we unify together, we're more. Yeah. So why isn't there more of us? Why aren't there more of us in a, a in a building? Okay, seated in seats that are determining our lives. Yeah, your your approach to uh, this campaign focusing in on the good things that can happen and not the mudslinging, not the not the the, the, the shit trauma. talking. Yeah, the all of that <laughs> is that something that? Um, how can I ask? Do you feel like you are being? Uh, the bigger woman in that regard, running, you know, for state senate, have you found yourself in the middle of sort of the smears, the the negative Definitely. energy, and and how are you dealing with that part of it? Try phone banking and colleague, <laughs> you know, this is like a whole different sector of, uh, it, but but it's not. It's very similar to the industry, mm -hmm. <laughs> the music and performing arts industry, sure. uh, because you're not everyone's gonna like your 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 music, right? Not everyone's gonna like uh, the way that you dress or the way you talk. that's okay. Everyone's entitled mm -hmm. to opinion. However, everyone's entitled to respect. Yeah, and I have already felt it. I'm oh the rapper, uh, the singer is you know it's like that's right. She's not a serious no, candidate. She's not all a of, serious yeah. candidate. She doesn't know the system. She doesn't. Know, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Okay, so we've been helping folks get elected by our art, mm -hmm. but when it's time to feel protected. As a concerned citizen, just like everybody else, where 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 are the people at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where are they at? Mm -hmm. I know where the people at. I know where our people are at. Yeah. And our people are getting ready to vote for me on that ballot. Mm -hmm. And so that's the centralization of the focus. The focus is on focusing on the people that are inspiring the work, 
focus on the people that are encouraging the work. But if I swam in the circles of what everybody got to say and do, I would never be the woman that I am today breathing on this microphone speaking right now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because we, we've we been punched at a lot. I'm coming out there like Holly Berry in the new flick uh-huh. that she just directed <laughs> and she acted and starred in and mm-hmm. produced, you know, and that's the momentum. It's we can do this. We've been doing everything that they told. I've been doing everything that folks have disencouraged me to do since I was a young girl. And I've always put a star next to that box. Mm-hmm. So this is the next goal. I'm doing this. Yeah. And we're doing this in community. So let the let the bars that are the, let the bullets of, of hate. There's there's none to me there. They get dissolved um, in this ice. <laughs> they <Yeah>. evaporate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's it's a it's a part of the game. It's yeah. Part of the process. But yeah, I like organic food more than processed. I so. hear you. I hear you. <laughs> Those are bars there. Uh, I, I know that the work, you know, your vision, your goals can't be reduced down simply to campaign promises. But mm-hmm. with that being said, what are you promising for those of us who you hope to represent at the state level? You know, small businesses to be more engaged within, you know, creative angles and connecting with the artists that I, someone that I know as a, as a small business owner, uh, as an artist, it's always been a collective to engage with other businesses in your community mm-hmm. because we offer something that their business may not have. So engaging more of a diverse uh, commitment in our district, yeah. in our state, okay, but coming from this district, to be connected with their businesses and arts. And uh, I wanna see a Latino a, a Latino arts museum, a Latino history museum here on the West Side and yeah. connecting with those, commu- those community leaders and business owners that their families helped build that and their stories aren't being told. I wanna see our health sector be open for not just Minnesotans who are documented, but also undocumented. Sure, sure. We've been fighting for this Alex Law. We fought, it's been signed. And now uh, our group is Insulin for All, a member that I'm a part of this this amazing grassroots organizing that are now being challenged uh, by Big Pharma at the federal federal courts, Mm -hmm. you know? I wanna see our children identify with themselves in education. I want to see teachers being supported and, and 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 teachers of color, BIPOC teachers being supported to teaching our history yeah. so that our children can thrive. Because you know when you know who you are, you know you can do whatever you want to do. Yeah. You know that you can heal yourself from trauma that has been a part of the history. So I want that to be placed. We need to recognize this indigenous land Mm -hmm. We need to recognize the tribes that are the first nations here, Mm -hmm. that history has to be taught in our schools and we, and and it deserves to be free. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. When I say free, we shouldn't have to be fighting for how much lunch is going to have to be caused. Bless Philando Castile's, you know, spirit that was taken away from us in Mm -hmm. the physical form. But I see women like his mother who are fighting for justice still through, through philanthropic endeavors that are going to feed the students that he fed when that should already be free. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we're talking about housing, we're talking about education, we're talking about healthcare, we're talking about our businesses being supported in a pandemic. 
and that we can also find ways of educating a next wave of business owners. Yeah. What funding is out there? What resources are out there? Not just for one one group, one eyelash out the eye. Okay, but no, the whole set. Let's let's talk about training and 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 for economic development and also training on how we can begin family successions and how our people can be how it was in the Black Wall Street era. Right. Okay. Right. Because we have been here, we've been doing it. Why has that been dismantled? Well, because we need more folks like myself who get it, who are coming from these communities, who are this community, to be fighting for this in front of a whole lineage, a whole history Mm -hmm. of supremacy that continues to keep us oppressed. So talk a little bit about caucus, because I know it's more than just showing up and vote. You're hoping for something even more coming up on on February 1st, I'm, I, I, if I'm remembering that correctly. That's right. That's right. I'm glad you remembered. I need you there, my brother. I need you there. So <laughs> I'll be there. February 1st is caucus, uh, and there'll be represent uh, centers, four different locations for each precinct um, of the district. So on the west side, see us at Humboldt High School, uh, in Frogtown Rondo, see us you know definitely at capitol hill mm-hmm. uh west enders you can find us at palace rec center and downtown lower town you can find us at creative arts high school and i say us my team my campaign we need you to be present at six o'clock if you support the movement that we're working on when i say we're because i just don't have a i have a problem saying i'm working on yeah. because it's a collective it's a movement um, if you want to support this, we need and live in this district, live in, di- live in District 65. And if you need help, if you don't know if you live in this district or what district you live in and how you can get engaged, contact me at team at mariaisa.org. And I'll give you the link and the information. It's as simple. You can type it in on your phone with your address and find out who's representing you. But if you live in my district and you'd like for me to represent you as your next senator, I need to see you at 6 p.m. at one of those four locations <laughs> present that you will vouch for my candidacy to be the next Minnesota state senator of District 65. What are you hoping to inspire in folks who are not citizens of District 65, folks in other parts of the cities, Minnesota, other folks across the country? What, is, what does your campaign mean for those folks? Get involved in your districts. Get involved in local politics. Like you stated in the first you know, entrance of this interview, m- majority of folks just pay attention for a presidential election. Right. Pay attention to your local politics, okay? Because the president can do something, but you already know after these past two years in a pandemic, the governor is the president of this state, yeah. okay? That's how we have yeah. to we have to look at that. The Senate is the one that's stamping, you know, those bills to get signed by the Senate, by the, by the, by the governor, okay? So get involved in your local politics. Learn these folks represent you, Okay. It's their job to listen to you mm-hmm. and to fight for you and to hear you out. That's why you, that's how the important your vote is. You give that power. So if you don't if you're not a part of that, if you decide not to vote, then I don't want to hear no one complaining. <laughs> or if you can't vote and aren't a part of a of a process, yeah. you know, or if if you can vote, recognize that there's folks that live in your district that live on your block that may not be able to vote because sure. of their age, because of their document status, mm-hmm. okay, or some some other some other legal battles that they may be uh, confronting at the mm-hmm. same time that needs your voice. 
And that's the power of their vote. So please let me know how I can help you. Uh, we've got several volunteers on our on our campaign that are definitely, definitely engaged in making sure that you feel comfortable in this process and that you're educated on the simplicity of the power of your vote. So when I believe in speaking things into existence. So when you, you know you win after your successful campaign, <laughs> what will that mean? For the music, are you going to have jam sessions in your office at That's the Capitol, right. or what's going to happen? I would. I mean, I, I served. Um, I I was appointed by Governor Waltz and Lieutenant Governor Flanagan on the uh, CAT board for uh, public engagement, the task force. I'm mm -hmm. on the task force of the public engagement um, for the Capitol area and architectural pro project. This is meaning we want arts, not just visually there to represent us, mm -hmm. but we want our people i want to be on that capitol ground to do music and concerts and powwows and 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 jam sessions not only when we're in in days of protest okay i wanted that that's a that is a space and open platform to be celebrated as minnesotans as a whole so i see music i see arts that's representative of our artists that have been a part of of, of minnesota history i see images of gordon parks on those walls mm -hmm. i see images of the indigenous people who have taught us about the land and how to how to survive in this cold yeah. and, and 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 saving and working on saving this water i see the celebration Celebration of all Minnesotans through music and arts. That's what I see when I'm centered in there. Yeah, there needs to be some music up in there. There needs to be celebration in there. Bring the soul to those people, yeah, as we've been talking bring about. Bring the soul, bring the soul, bring the love. Because when there is arts and music, there is celebration. There is celebration. When we mourn as people together, we yeah. also celebrate our ancestors. Yeah. And that needs that needs to be a part of this healing process. And we've been through a lot, Minnesota. We've been through a lot through our history. We've been through a lot. Let's create history that is going to be celebrated. It's not going to be easy. We know this. But at the same time, I have hope. I have hope when there's leadership that are unifying and really, really seeing a vision for our future, not just playing this Benetton commercial. Yeah. Yeah. I got one more question for you. But before I do that, give us the website one more time. Where can folks go to um, contribute resources to offer their time and just to learn more? You can check us out at www. www. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Maria Isa M A R I A I S A dot org. Okay, so that's Maria Isa dot org. Come yes. join the team, people from Maria Isa, and I hope to see you at caucus. So I know, or maybe I need to learn more about the political system, but I imagine once you um, achieve this position, you can't wave a magic wand and get rid of student loan debt, for example. <laughs> if you can, please do once you <laughs> once you get in there. <laughs> right? I'm like, why do they keep holding right. that off? But what? But what is the most radical thing that you would change for all of us given the opportunity i mean again we can we can talk about uh, student loan debt we can mm -hmm. talk about healthcare all mm -hmm. of these big things but for you what is the thing that you want to topple over once you have the opportunity to do so that's a great question um, I look at all of them braided into one, mm. okay? So we can fight for one of them to get past that's helping and advancing one of the injustices that we keep being traumatized by. Sure. But I'm really pushing for health, number one. We need healthcare to even be able to have an education. 
Okay, without healthcare, how are we gonna be educated? Mm-hmm. Okay, without without healthcare, how are we gonna be able to work? Okay, we need to have a, a free healthcare for all of us, for everyone that has put their time, their blood, sweat, and tears in Minnesota. That will help out us to be able to stay alive to continue. I, without healthcare, I can't be a senator. Without yeah. having a healthy heart and 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 insulin, I can't breathe. I can't be mom. You know, so I think about healthcare being a front door because that that's not just about feeling good physically. That's mentally. That's yep. emotionally. That's providing life. You know, our black mothers, our indigenous mothers, our mothers of color who have been traumatized by a healthcare system that isn't isn't a, a, a alert of how to get us to give birth to our children. You know, we need to see more funding for those avenues alongside affordable health care. OK, we need health care accessibility for all. And we also need to promote that there is doctors that are out there that understand cultural competency. Mm, mm, that part, that part right there. Because that's where the healing process starts, my brother. That's where it starts. We need cultura. Culture needs to be embedded into every, every, every bullet point that our folks are fighting for in Minnesota. That's, that's a part of the healing process. And with healing, that's health. Don't let the cloudy days cover up your light. Switch you give the world shine so bright. Brighter than the stars up in the sky. I just want to do whatever's going to make you smile. Because they can't come on forever. I promise we can make it better. What did she say, Scott? Don't let the gray clouds block out the brightness. It's going to be okay, X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, think, I, I think that's a good message for you this evening. I'm fine. I think that's a good message. I am fine. <laughs> uh, you know, where we ended our conversation, I asked uh, Maria Issa, what does she feel like she can actually change or actually do as a state senator and the the edges of that, the most radical thing that you'll put out there. And uh, of course, you talked about health care and, and the importance of healing our community, not only emotionally, but physically healing our community. So I guess my question for you before we get into the last movement, you know, if you're given the cards, you're given the gavel, you're in charge. What is the most radical way left field thing you would just Swipe, uh, uh, swipe a magic wand and change in your in your profession as a classical music broadcaster. Mm-hmm. I think that I would have to put my money where my mouth is or has been. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> Go on. So for the last <laughs> for the last few opuses, you know, we've been talking about uh, Handel. And last week we talked about Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to put my money where my mouth is and and uh, and not play the Messiah. Is that wrong? <laughs> not not in my opinion. <laughs> give, give, give us mm. give us thirty give, give us forty five seconds on why you would make that decision. Why that's the executive thing that you would take out if you had the opportunity to. Well, if you go back and you listen to last opus, we lay it out pretty clearly there, but I can give the broad strokes here again, yep. which is we know that Handel 
uh, was allowed to compose because of his investments in transatlantic transatlantic slave commerce. Yeah. Right. So, um, I mentioned last week that it would go a long way to listeners of color to let them know that you are serious about including them and attracting them and keeping their ears if you were to not play music by a man who was involved in the slave trade. And this is why the different perspectives are so important, because the way you frame that is not the way I would ever frame it because I, I, I couldn't, but I, I totally agree with you. You know that arts institutions care if they are changing foundational things. It's one thing to include this piece of music or to take this thing away or to have a fellow or an intern or whatever. But if you take something like Handel's, Handel's Messiah, something that is foundational to the art form, and because of more contemporary uh, conversations and and perspectives and sensibilities. You take it out of there. Yes, I think you're exactly right. That is showing. And like I said last week, the folks who are like, well, if we get handled out of here, we got a lot of people to get out of here. Well, I'll quote myself, get to fucking work. I think that's what mm. I said. Mm-hmm. Anyway, shout out to Maria Issa. Uh, I'll have all of her information and ways that you can support uh, in the description of this Let's make change. There are artists out here trying to make change, not only in word, but in action, all the way to getting into the politics of it all. There's so many skeletons. They'll have, Scott, they would have my mug shots on TV if I tried to run. I oh. mean, they will, uh, and they will find the tweets, obviously. I mean, hey, so, that so would, I can't. That might, that might actually help you in some circles. <laughs> it might, yeah. All right. Well, uh, to get us into the fourth movement, to trill our way into the fourth movement, I wanted to quickly honor. Uh, a composer uh, named Carmen Brohard. So in addition to New Year's Day being uh, Imani in Kwanzaa, it's also Haitian Independence Day. I'm going to... Uh, Is that right? Cool. Yeah, so the, the photo that I put on my social media... I'm going to have the as the photo for, uh, for, for this opus so y'all can see what it is. Uh, some people had a problem <laughs> with me posting a photo of black military men uh, celebrating victory, and there's all sorts of European powder wig folks laying bloody on the ground. You know, folks folks had a feeling about it, but at the end of the day, that's what Haiti had to do to get their independence, their liberation. Now, is that something that we need to do today? I'm not saying that, <laughs> but I am saying let's think about what it means to be revolutionary, to really change systems and the things that have to happen. Let's all get on the same team to make those things happen. So anyway, Carmen Broard um, uh, passed away back in 2005, um, highly accomplished Haitian composer and uh, pianist whose music doesn't really get a front seat. I've recently learned about Carmen Broard, but I'm going to share a bit of her music here so um, y'all know who she is and can look her up. This is a piano concerto that she wrote called Baron Lacroix, an incredible piece of music to get us into the fourth movement of this opus. You could almost hear something that reminds me of the spiritual. And of course, the, the, the Haitian tradition is different than the Afro-American tradition. But some of those things, some of those through lines are, are very much there. And I'm sure this is a composer you don't know much about. But I am, I am today years old when I heard her music. Yeah. So let's, um, let's you know, 
again, as, as we continue to spread out our sensibilities and the way that we program, even within the traditional orchestral paradigms, there's so many other composers there, including Carmen Broard, the late Carmen Broard from Haiti. So happy Independence Day to everyone down there in Haiti, and welcome to the fourth movement of this podcast, of this opus of it. All right, so this is what we're going to talk about this week, Scott. There's a Rhode Island representative who was slammed for tweeting, she lost a black friend to critical race theory. Let me read the tweet quickly. She said, I had a black friend. I liked her and I think she liked me too, but now she is hostile and unpleasant. I am sure I didn't do anything to her except be white. So the reason I got to this is because I was checking what was trending on Twitter like I do every now and again. And what one of the things trending was hashtag I had a white friend. And so they take the words of this Rhode Island uh, representative and flip it. And you get all of these black folks on social media telling their stories about I had a white friend and then they... Um, said, oh, you're not like the rest of the blacks. And then, you know, or, you know, or they asked to touch my hair or they uh, held out their arm after vacation and said, look, I'm almost as dark as you are, X, Y, and Z. So all of these stories that people are telling on social media in response to what this woman said. One of the things, um, you know, I, I think this is so important because especially in art spaces, especially in uh, so-called classical music spaces, these conversations get so uncomfortable because folks are completely unprepared and not used to getting into some of these conversations. Before we talk specifically um, about arts and approximating that, I wonder if you've had to separate yourself from friends because of social movements or political opinions or or any of those things. Um, a friend of mine got really heavy into uh, an evangelical church. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm fine with that sure do what you like it i love it yeah but when when you start coming at me <laughs> and want and want to bring me into it yeah that's that's where i'm like okay this is okay this so is so so let's connect that to the work we do here on triloquy mm -hmm. i wasn't an evangelical christian but i was someone who had an idea about how classical music can be changed and that's something that you supported and i was like all right well come on yeah, you 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 do it with me, right? I'm sure, uh, you know, some of the conversations we have here are are very challenging for you. Is there any point? I'm putting you on the spot. Is there any point in which you feel like the work that we do here is going to or could jeopardize our relationship? Is there ever too equity or too whatever? You know, when mm -hmm. it comes to your ability to engage conversation excuse me, conversations with black folk like me. Before I answer that, can I just touch on something from the article? The, I, I want to talk to the black friend because she thinks, does the black friend think that they were friends? Because <laughs> listen, I've, I've got a lot of black acquaintances. <laughs> yeah. I've got a lot of black people that I can see, go, oh, hey, you know, yeah. but I, I don't know anything about them. Yeah. Okay. So, We've talked about this before. There's been loads of times where you bring up a point or you start talking about an evil or something that you see as a problem. And you remember the big deal that I had with y'all for a while? I couldn't separate y'all from you. Mm. And I thought that you were- My saying that, right. sure. So you, I felt like, well, you're roping me in there. And there's a lot of things that you talk about that I am guilty of, that yeah. I am in the group that you yeah. are talking about. So- 
I can see where she's at when she's talking about her black acquaintance, mm-hmm. starting to talk about things that she's touching on nerves. Yeah. And then, and then all of a sudden you're feeling like, well, I don't do that, or that's not me, or, mm-hmm. but I am in that group. So um, I think that I'm getting lost in my own words, but what I'm trying to say is that, yes, that has happened loads of times where we've been sitting here recording the podcast and I'm sitting here going, you're talking about me now. You're talking about me. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. But look where we are now. Yeah. I can sit across from you and not get bent out of shape. Yeah. I think, you know, what you, what you said, I'm, I'm going to underscore, there are a lot of, well, first of all, let me say this. I feel like based on uh, demographics and just by the numbers, most white folks don't know any black people because they live in Idaho or Wyoming or, or New York City or wherever, where they're completely within their own communities. I, I don't think that's a stretch. Mm-hmm. Is I think it's very easy for a white person in the United States to not know any black folks. Okay. But to the white folks that do have black acquaintances and black friends, my feeling is if you've never heard those people air their grievances, because we all have grievances, we all have race-based grievances. If you've never heard those people air those grievances, I will go as far as to say that you don't have a black friend. You know someone black, but they don't trust your ability to digest. They don't trust your emotional intelligence enough to not center yourself and make it about you, but to make it about the issue. What, what, what's your response to that statement? My saying that if you have never heard a black person air their grievances, you probably don't have a black friend. That makes sense. Um, what, um, I'm sorry, I, I, got, I got lost on the, on the article again. Ask your question to me again. Uh, is that statement, airing grievances, if that's something that you have not heard your black friends get into. If you've never heard your black friends, you know, yelling or get frustrated or whatever over some racial grievance, you don't actually have black friends. You know, you, you might know some black people, but those right. aren't people that that trust you to be able to engage what is being said. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Um, like I said, I, I I've got a lot of black acquaintances. <laughs> now, now of yeah. course, you know, yeah. I've got a handful of, mm-hmm. of, of of them that I would actually say are friends. Yeah. And, um, I've heard them air grievances quite a bit. Yeah. Um, if you are in a position where you're just starting to hear them and it comes across to you as hostile, um, check your privilege because, um, you, you're running up against it right there. Yeah. Um, the, the, the phrase equity seems like oppression when you're used to privilege, mm-hmm. right? I think that you can kind of use that here. If you are hearing the real real from a black person around you for the first time and it's coming across as hostile, maybe you do have a black friend. Mm, and think about that and think about what you can do with that information because that is not information, grievances. That's not something that I am going to share with a lot Just of folks. anybody. Because, right? I, because it's not about me trying to keep a secret or thinking someone is unintelligent, but this is a reality that marginalized folks understand that folks in the most privilege of circumstances and categories don't have the ability to digest these things. So, you know, to this uh, Rhode Island representative, you know, I would challenge I would challenge you. Did you have a black friend or did you have someone who finally says something to you and you 
showed yourself. Mm. You know, your feelings came out the way you think about these conversations came out. So to, you know, uh, uh, to wrap this back into the arts, you know, as, as we close here, when we talk about how mo- by the numbers, most white folks in the United States don't have black friends and haven't heard grievances. So when they hear the grievances, they feel attacked. Mm-hmm. I think that's especially true in these arts institutions. We still have many orchestras, many conservatories, many radio stations, many um, uh, training grounds, whatever, that are all white. And then when that one person of color, when that one trans person, when that one woman comes into the room and challenges the status quo that y'all have been living in, it's not about you being attacked. It's about the privilege, the opportunity to hear a challenge and for you to do what you can about it, or even to just listen. Because sometimes it's not about immediate action. It's it's not about uh, virtue signaling on your part and all those sorts of things. Sometimes it's about just having an ear and and listening to us traverse the world because there is a lot to traverse, especially in uh, so-called classical music. All right. That's all I got for this week. Happy New Year, everyone. Um, looking forward to more. See y'all next week.